You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. Here we cover a variety of topics that are going to help you be more successful in the field while you're hunting deer. Thank you so much for tuning in with me this week. Uh, I've got a conversation with Mr. Clint Campbell from the Truth From The Stand podcast. Now, if you're not familiar with Clint, he is what I would consider one of the podcast OGs, right? Like he's been around a really, really long time. He's done, I don't know, 300 and some odd weekly episodes. So I think he said he was coming up on his seven year anniversary of podcasting. He's been doing it a long time. So uh, not only is he an experienced hunter, but he's also had the chance to talk with some of the best hunters in the U.S. And Clint has always done a really good job of finding a lot of guys that maybe Maybe you don't get to hear from very often. Uh, he finds those guys that are kind of the quiet killers who, you know, they're not posting their kills on Instagram. They're not posting videos to YouTube. You don't see them all over other podcasts and just kind of recycled through. The, he does a great job of finding those guys that just know how to kill deer. And so uh, he's always a great guest. I had him on last year, I guess probably a year and a half ago now at this point, but Clint is always a great guest. He is extremely, extremely knowledgeable. He's super down to earth, always willing to help. And uh, yeah, one thing he knows better than many that I have talked to is trail cameras. And you can ask a lot of folks, if there's one guy that I trust to get some summer velvet picks of bucks in the big woods clint campbell is going to be the guy now with that said i understand just about anybody can throw out some corn just about anybody can put a camera on a soybean field and get pictures of velvet bucks i get that really simple uh it's a different game though when you're hunting the big woods when you're when you're truly hunting those areas that are just massive expanses of woods with no ag anywhere around no ability to bait it it gets a little bit more difficult and so i wanted to have clint on to talk about uh, his summer trail camera strategy how he finds these velvet bucks and then you know how he transitions from there to hey i got these pictures to how am i going to formulate a season hunting plan based off of what i got this summer before we jump in though i do want to say thanks to our partners first of all tacticam the title sponsor of the show Hopefully you've got your bow out already and are practicing for the upcoming fall. Hopefully deer hunting is on your mind. And hopefully you're thinking about self-filming your hunts. It's one of the most rewarding things that I have done 
and making that transition to being someone who self-films. And, and a Tacticam point-of-view cameras, to me, are just the most no-nonsense way of beginning to film your hunts. It's a lot of work when you start carrying in a camera arm, an extra camera, microphone, extra batteries, all that stuff. But with Tacticam 6.0 or Tacticam Solo Extreme Camera, you don't have to worry about carrying all of that stuff. Their cameras are light, they're compact, they've got just the right mounts and adapters to put them pretty much anywhere you want them to be. And uh, one of the places that I want mine to be is on the front of my bow. So I love their stabilizer mount that holds my 6.0. And part of what I'm doing this year, making sure that I'm ready to go, is shooting with the, not just the stabilizer mount, but with my camera on there already. And that's doing a couple of things for me. Number one, it's getting me used to that feel of that little bit of extra weight on the front of my bow. Number two, I'm training myself not to drop the bow arm at the shot. The reason that I want to do that or don't want to do that, uh, I know it looks cool when you watch some of your favorite YouTubers, they like to, you know, fake a surprise release and drop their bow arm. Uh, but I don't know of a much better way of saying that. But uh, if you're filming your hunts with a Tacticam, you've got it in the stabilizer mount. You don't want to drop that arm. You want to follow the deer, follow the shot with that camera. And so, um, yeah, so I'm practicing with mine already. I recommend you do the same. Head over to Tacticam.com. Grab the camera of your choice, whether that be a 6.0 or a Solo Extreme. They're both great cameras. Go ahead and pick up the one that you're going to be using this fall or thinking about using this fall. Get it on your bow. Start practicing with it right now. And in case you're wondering, the Tacticam 6.0 and the Solo Extreme make fantastic Father's Day gifts. So head over to Tacticam.com. Grab one for yourself. Grab one for your dad, whatever the case may be. And, uh, yeah, start sharing your hunt with Tacticam. Next up, Onyx. This is that time of year when uh, scouting from the couch is kind of one of my favorite things to do. Really don't have a lot of uh, enjoyment out there in the woods once we get past, I don't know, mid-June or so. It's kind of like, man, it's hot. I'd rather be doing other things. And if I am going to be scouting, it's going to be from uh, either a vehicle or it's going to be from my couch. And Onyx lets me do that. Onyx right now has a wonderful deal going on. If you use the code DAD23, you can get 30% off. So if you or your dad do not currently use Onyx, this is a fantastic Father's Day gift. It's going to get you 30% off of their elite and premium memberships. Again, use the code DAD23. That is going to get you 30% off of their premium or elite memberships. Go pick one up for yourself or your dad or the buddy in your life that doesn't use Onyx and really, really needs to be because 30% off is about as good of a deal as you are ever going to find on uh, the Onyx Hunt app. So go check it out. You can find them on the app store of your choice or head over to their website, onyxmaps.com, to learn more. Now, with all that out of the way, let's jump into the conversation talking trail cameras and public land summer bucks with Clint Campbell. I wanted to talk specifically about um, trail cameras. So mm-hmm. I heard your buddy, uh, the bow hunting fiend himself, Mr. Greg Litzinger. <laughs> he, he yeah. was talking about you on, a, on another show, man. And I don't think he was throwing shade, but he was like, man, Clint Campbell can get some big deer on, on camera. He's just got to put the pieces together when it comes to killing those big deer. So, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, let, let's talk. Okay. We, we've been, we've been talking about Kansas and you're, you're hunting out there, which man, that's, you got me fired up. Like that sounds like a whole, like <clears throat> whole other thing, you know, running around on the ground and, uh, being pretty aggressive with that. But when it comes to the area that you hunt, it's not like Kansas at all. So before we jump into, no. you know, your trail camera strategy or your approach or where you like to hang them, tell me about the places that you hunt. 
uh, because I think a lot of guys are going to find that more relatable than maybe folks who hunt in, you know, farm country in Iowa. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, it, and it's a world of difference. Um, that was probably the biggest challenge of headed out, you know, to the plain States and, and hunting out there. It was just that it's, it, it couldn't be more opposite of what I hunt on a, you know, a day-to-day basis in my, in my home state. Really the biggest difference is, is, you know, obviously there's no trees and it's flat for the most part in Kansas and you can see a long ways and you glass a lot and stuff like that. The areas that I'm hunting in Pennsylvania is just all, you know, part of it's swamps, um, in and around water to a degree, um, and then mountains, you know, and yeah. like the North piece that I hunt and been playing around with them for the past couple of years. I mean, those are big mountains. Those are, you know, elevation probably cracks 21, maybe 2,500 feet at like the peak of, uh, of some of the highest points, maybe, um, it's, it's not like Western mountains, of course, right. That's, that's a whole different animal, but as far as for East coast mountains go, like they're, 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 they're pretty gnarly. Sure. Um, you know, locally, and it's really different too, because like what I hunt locally is even vastly different than what I hunt in the, in the North. And so locally is a lot of like smaller, um, parcels of public, you know, there's not really any agriculture around me because I live, you know, um, North of Philadelphia, you know, so I live in the suburbs of, of Philadelphia. And so the parcels aren't, aren't huge to start. Um, and there's just not a lot of agriculture around those areas because it's just, it's super populated, right? And so there's no like significant destination food sources so, per se. You know, I might glass like a bean field that might be a couple miles away from where I'm hunting, knowing that not that that deer is living on that public necessarily like in August or even September, but whenever he shifts, um, he may end up shifting, you know, to the rain, the area that I'm hunting, you know? And so I like to kind of know what deer are kind of hitting some of those fields, even if it is a little bit ways away from where I'm hunting, just because they might be making the transition to the areas that I'm actually hunting. Um, tons of pressure, you know, it's not, again, you know, when you head out to the Midwest, you know, you're dealing with less pressure. Um, and you know, here, man, you see flagging tape, you see night eyes, you see people, you see people's tree stands. Um, you know, it, everyone's using the same access, <laughs> you know, so there's no really, there's no real secrets, you yeah. know, like around here for the most part, you know, you, you know, I've done a, a fair job at finding hidey holes, um, around here, a handful of them, you know, and, and, uh, you know, every year I go out and I try to find some additional hidey holes, uh, and they're becoming harder and harder to find, mm-hmm. um, just because, you know, I think most places get explored um, pretty thoroughly just with like, you know, the different mapping tools people have and stuff like that. People who maybe aren't real sharp woodsmen, um, feel a little bit more confident when they have GPS in their, you know, in their phone, in their pocket. Right. And it gives them a little bit more, um, confidence to kind of venture a little further from the truck and stuff like that. Um, you know, when you transition up to the North piece that I hunt, you know, that is the epitome of like big woods. We're talking like, you know, like the two main pieces that I kind of play around on up there, like I think collectively together, it's like a hundred thousand ish plus acres roughly. Um, yeah. You know, there's not really any ag around there cause it's all mountain ground. And the place is so big that even if you're hunting in the middle of it and not completely on the fringe of it, even if there was a farm, like you're still so far away from any of the farm, any farm that might be around that it, that it is, it's a, it's no factor when yeah. it comes to like making a game plan for hunting those deer. Sure. Um, and they act a little differently too. Um, you know, I mean, there is a little bit less pressure cause it is harder to hunt. It's just not as populated of, uh, of an area either. Um, you know, so that certainly, that certainly helps out. But the flip side of that is that there's so much room to roam that, you know, it's, 
not that there's a lack of deer or a, a low deer density because Pennsylvania has a pretty healthy deer population just in general. Um, but it's just the vast areas that they have to, to move. Mm-hmm. It's hard to figure out, you know, and kind of pin them down and not every area on that piece is necessarily, um, I won't say utilized by deer, but it's not, you know, deer centric, if you will. Right. Like you might walk, I'll be scouting and I might walk a mile, mile and a half and not see a stitch of deer sign, no scat, no rubs, no scrapes, no beds, no nothing. And you would think that there hadn't ever been a deer walk through there in its entire existence <laughs> of this place. Yeah. You know, cause it's just like some of it's real old growth forest, you know, and stuff like that. And so it becomes trying to find like these little micro habitats where if we go back to like where I live locally, you know, there's a lot of homes that are around these pieces of public and stuff like that. And they're not that big. And so you have like the structure of like the public of the private, like small parcels that kind of create some like definition and structure for them to have to follow. Even if it is, even if that piece of public is kind of homogenous, mm-hmm. like those, so you can always start at those like private lines and start to work your way because they're definitely going to be in their backyards, eating their, their out of their bird feeders or in their gardens or, or whatever, you know what I mean? Yep. Um, and so at least kind of gives you a starting point. I don't often start there. I usually start in areas that look like it's really kind of shitty and swampy for the most part. That's usually like a lot of the times where I'll start in those areas or just areas that are just hard to kind of get because there's also like, you'll also run across like these huge boulder fields too mm. that doesn't look like a deer would ever spend any time. in. like, I'm talking like rocks that are like, there's one area that I just don't even go to. I made the mistake of scouting, trying to make my way through it. And there's boulders in there like the bigger than my truck that are just like huge, Jeez. you know, but if you get some of these smaller ones, like Greg and I, Greg scouted one of the areas with me one time and we actually found a buck bed on a rock. Like he's betting on, on the rock. That's wild. You know? And yeah. So it's like, they'll spend time in there. Um, and so going to places that are like adjacent to that, because they are spending time in there, people don't want to go in there. So the deer certainly can be safe in there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that, you know, an old, an old, you know, wiry buck, that'd be a great place for him to bet, especially if he can hop out and, to an Oak flat that's just adjacent to it or whatever. Um, and so that's kind of like the description of a lot of what I, a lot of what I hunt. It's not topography rich. Um, so there's not like, it's not like hunting Southern Ohio where you've got, you know, hills and bluffs and stuff like that, that are like moving deer around necessarily. You know what I mean? It's not like, you know, there's not topography that's going to kind of push deer in certain, certain areas. It's going to be really subtle kind of changes in elevation that you're going to have to look for. Some of it's not visible on a map. You can only see it like when your boots on the ground and then you go to the North piece. I'm kind of trying to juxtapose both. So people kind of get a sense of like how like Pennsylvania is different from where I'm, where I hunt in the Midwest, but how those, how these two pieces specifically are are vastly different even. Sure. When you go to the, when you go to the North piece, if you're either dealing with really, really steep terrain and it's like almost an unhuntable, right? And then you are kind of dealing with like some like Western style stuff where you're dealing with like, uh, you know, you're rising and falling thermals, which makes it really, really challenging for access in those areas. Um, or you're almost hunting the tops of these mountains and it just becomes swamps. And so there's no real like topography change that's going to like move deer, right? And so the subtlest topography in that area is like, a game changer. Like it, it will like, if you find something, I remember I found like this one little, little hill on this top of this like mountain. And, uh, I was like, Oh, that's the only elevation change I see. I was like, I'm gonna put a camera close to it. Cause I was like, I bet it's making deer probably moving around it. 
sure enough, man, it's like I had like all kinds of velvet pictures that were just like hammers, you know, <laughs> and there's a swamp not far away. So they're living in the swamp and this piece of topography is move, making them move a certain direction. And so that's like the one area that I was able to kind of be like, okay, here is something familiar to me. I understand how they should use this. Let's set a camera and see if they do. Yeah. So let's, let's shift and talk about, um, your, your whole camera strategy then. I mean, you obviously get a lot of deer on camera. I think that's, that's one of the areas that I think you stand out. Cause like, I hear you talk about the deer you have on camera all the time and just the quality of good bucks. These places are very, very, very different, right? So mm-hmm. uh, would you say, so you mentioned kind of the deer on, especially the Northern piece, they'll, they'll be in pockets, right? These little micro habitats, kind of mm-hmm. like you were saying, are you seeing them in pockets on your, your places closer to home as well? Just like, and, and maybe primarily due to pressure or are they pretty, are they more evenly spread out? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think at home for summer kind of inventory, they are still, they are spread out because there's no pressure, of course. Right. Like people, I mean, you you get some people, you know, around because of the pieces are they're multi-use game lands. And so people are hiking on them, you know, sometimes depending on which piece you're on, they might be biking or whatever. Um, But the, but I kind of focus on the same things always, you know, because there's so much pressure, especially locally that I, I don't have, I can't just like, you know, on a day off or whatever and just be like, all right, I'm going to go hunt this like funnel. If, if you do find a funnel, because if you can see it on a map, like everyone's going to know that it's there. You sure. know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it's that simple. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, gathering Intel in years past, um, you know, including this year, letting my cameras run all year round in specific locations to try to get a sense of like when deer want to show up in a spot, you know, and how they kind of use the spot from, from, uh, throughout the season, you know, even into the summer. So I'll set cameras, you know, in May, you know, as early as May and I'll let them run and I won't check them again until the following May. Cause I'm trying to build like a database of like, how do they like to use this area? Like I said before, you know, it doesn't necessarily work as well for people who maybe have like changing food sources and stuff like that. where like the agricultural, like the crop rotation changes, right? Yeah. Like that's different because now all of a sudden you're changing whatever's in that field. So where deer that wanted to bed there in August, you know, that traditionally bed there in August don't only bed there every two years because of the crop rotation or whatever. Yep. I really don't have to deal with that. The downside of not having any crops close by is I can't play like a really slick bed to food pattern in the early season. The upside to it is, is that if I find deer in the summer and they like to spend time in a place, like they're probably going to be there every year yeah. because there's something that's putting them there, you know? And so, you know, that's, so I guess to get back to your question, it's not really pockets necessarily. What I really focus on, you know, anywhere really um, is finding primary scrapes. And if I find a scrape that looks like it's been opened up and has stayed open or is just so dished out that I know that it's getting used heavily, then, and it has, and I want it to have a licking branch too. If it doesn't have a licking branch, I'm not as interested in it. If it has a licking branch and it looks like it's been used over time, that's going to get a camera in February, March, April. I don't care when I find it. I'm putting a camera on it. The reason being is that, yeah, you want to see the deer like in October, use that scrape or, you know, early November or whatever the case is, mid-October. But really what I want to know is do they hit it in, you know, March, April, May, June, July, August, September? Because if they do, that is a hub of communication. That is a concrete hub where there's multiple things kind of coming together there, whether it's like it's on the side of a drainage and there's like a microhabitat there, or there's like a, 
there's a piece of high ground there. It's pushing them all through this area that deer are just constantly kind of passing through that. Right. And if they're hitting that scrape on a consistent basis that I know that this is like, you know, if this is like route 95, for deer, yeah. you know, route 95 connects to the entire Eastern seaboard. You know what I mean? It's like, that's 95 for deer. Like when there's all those things kind of come together in that spot, that's getting a camera. And that's a lot of what my strategy is, is finding as many places like that, or, you know, terrain features, not even so much terrain features where I live because there's just not a lot of topography, but habitat features that act as terrain to move deer, mm-hmm. you know, wherever those edges are, that's going to make them have to move and make choices. Like those are the things that I'm looking for. And I do a lot of just putting cameras out in spots where it's like, you know, I know Greg's always like, you find big deer all the time on camera, (laughs) you know, and my other buddy, John says the same thing. He's like, dude, he's like, I don't know how you find deer in the middle of the woods without like some form of like, you know, a, uh, they don't have an incentive to go by your camera other than like you just place it in a spot that they like to walk by, Yeah. you know? And I was like, some of it is, is just like, I walk by a spot and I can't tell you why, but I'm just like, I didn't happen yesterday. I walked by a spot and I was like, Hmm. I was like, if I was a deer, I'd walk through here. I'm going to hang a camera. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of like, <laughs> you just get like a, after you've been doing it a little while, you know, you just kind of start to get like a, a spidey sense of where they're going to want to be, you yeah. know, and this was actually close to a property line. Um, you know, that it was an old horse farm like years ago. Um, and, uh, and it's just like, there's, there's a hard transition that happens there, you know? And then I saw like, you know, because it's somewhat swampy, I could see like deer were clearly coming out of this, like in this one particular area, you know, and I just don't complicate things. I'm like heavily used deer trail feels like they might want to eat over here. Maybe put a camera here. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think people try to complicate it too much. You know what I mean? And you, yeah. you don't want to put it like where people are going to be spending a lot of time and stuff like that. Then, you know, deer are just like, you know, introverted people. Like they don't want to be around other people, Sure. (laughs) you know what I mean? Or other deer even, you know? And so, you know, you put it in areas where you feel like they can get away from things a little bit and uh, not be bothered. And that's usually, you know, that's usually the Yahtzee spot. Yeah, man. I've, I've heard you say before and talk about, you know, you like your primary scrapes and that kind of thing. So I've got a spot in Southern Wisconsin that I really like to hunt. And there we do have the whole rotating ag thing. Um, and so some years are very different than, than other years. Uh, I've found some, what I would consider like primary scrapes, but they're not necessarily like the year long kind of scrapes. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's an area that from, you know, starting in the fall, it's used all fall long and every deer in the area comes through that area, but they're not necessarily using these scrapes, you know, for the rest of the year outside of the fall. So mm-hmm. I hung up this year. I was like, I'm going to get in there before these scrapes even really start to open up and I'm going to hang some cameras in there. And I was shocked at all the way through November, the number of bucks that were coming to these scrapes. And by the time I got there, I shot my buck not far from one of these. The scrapes had hardly even been opened up in November. Like the ground was not pawed. It was like a, like a dinner plate size, but the, the licking Mm -hmm. branches had been worked. So when it comes to the scrapes that you're looking for, is it, is it just location, 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 or do you feel like you can kind of tell a little bit by how it's being used? Because my whole confidence was shook this past year. Cause it's like, man, I can't even, I can't even look at a scrape and tell if it's a good one to hang a camera on at this point, because you know, I, I have camera evidence that there were three hammers in here all fall, you know, and, and into November, I ended up shooting one of them not far from the scrape yet. It didn't look like a kind of scrape that should have gotten my attention. 
Right. Yeah. For me, it's, there's never a clear cut answer, right? Like yeah. in anything deer hunting, it's always like six and one and half dozen in the other, sure. you know, and I wish I could sure. give you like a, it's always like this, you know, that would be great. You know, um, I think for me just over time of hanging so many cameras on them, you know, look, look you know, I've, I'm fortunate that I have just a, a bunch of cameras at, at my disposal. So I can hang what I call like burner cameras to try to qualify spots. Yeah. And that's a lot of what I do, you know, so like, you know, I'll find a scrape, you know, and I'll be like, it, it, usually for me, it's always got to have a licking branch. Like if it has a licking branch, that means it was heavily used. Doesn't necessarily mean that it, it's going to be used all year round per se, yep. but it gives it a much better chance. Right. Cause deer aren't, deer aren't pissing on the ground all year round. You know what I mean? Like you'll get some, like I was, you know, have some cell cameras on scrapes right now. And last week I had a deer pissing in a scrape, you know, but that's not going to happen. Like, you know, they're not coming there for that purpose necessarily. Right. But every one of them that passed there put their preorbital gland up in the, uh, up in the, uh, up in the licking branch. They didn't necessarily chew on it and on it or anything like that, but they put their face up there and put their preorbital gland on it, you know yeah. what I mean? To, to communicate. And so it's like, I'm always looking for the licking branch first and foremost, the size of the scrape sometimes matters, but you have to kind of like contextualize like the size of the scrape and like how often is it getting used? You know, like, is there a, is there, are there a bunch of deer in the area that could potentially use it? You know, um, is it outside of a doe bedding area? Because those usually get hammered and that's usually the ones that I find where it's like everything lines up, you know, where it's yeah. like big scrape licking branch or the Yahtzee is big scrape, multiple scrapes around it. That's usually what I'm really looking for, right? Yeah. Is like, or good scrape licking branch with other sign around it. And then knowing that there might be doe bedding like adjacent to it. Sure. Right. Like that's usually like a tell for me because those does are going to hit it way more often than bucks will, you know, even during, you know, even when you get into like pre-rut and rut and stuff like that, I mean, those primarily work scrapes predominantly way more than, than bucks will. Bucks will often, you know, come by, they, they check it. Certainly the smart ones don't even come to the scrape to check. And that happened to me last year. You know, I, there's a scrape area that I was hunting. It's a, it's a classic kind of community scrape area, a bunch of scrapes around it. Good sign adjacent to doe bedding in a good year when there's good acorn crop, like there's, there's acorns not far off. It's really thick. And one deer in this area that I was willing to kill last year, um, I had a picture of him in September come through and hit that scrape. Mm. and wa walked off and I was like, all right, that's the only buck that I know of in the area. That's a mature buck to shoot. Like he wasn't like a giant or anything like that, but he was at least four years old, you know? And so I was like, I was like, cool. I was like, if I see him, I'll kill him. So I went in on my peak, my, my favorite date of the year to hunt two years in a row, same spot. I saw my shooter just couldn't quite get the job done this year. I'm in the tree. One buck comes in, runs off, this buck slips in and beds down 40 yards from that scrape with the wind to his back. He could smell the scrape and anything mm. coming to check it and just laid there for two hours and then got up and walked away. Jeez. I never got him on camera again. Never. September 19th, never on camera again. And I saw him on October 18th. Man, so when I had it, an encounter with him. When it comes then to your, to your scrape, or your, your trail camera strategy then. And I've heard others say this before. Like if you see them on a camera, like you got to assume X number of times they're, they're probably walking past it. You know, if you see them three times in a week, you got to figure they were probably by there almost every day. Like when it comes to the, what the trail cameras aren't telling you, like what kind of assumptions are you making 
based on the intel that you're getting from your cameras, like this buck walked by it one day, like no telling how many times he was actually in there. Are you making any assumptions if you get just the one picture? Yeah. Uh, Usually I want to have two. Like I want to have, I would have liked to have had one more of him say like at the beginning of October, I would have liked to have had one. If I can get that, um, if I can get a buck coming by a scrape at the beginning of October, like in my, in my opinion, like he's in the area, you know what I mean? I don't know how close necessarily, but like he's this setup, this scrape and that camera presumably, um, is in what he'll use as his kind of like main fall range, you know, now when rut hits, who knows, but I feel pretty confident like for October, he's going to be around. Yeah. You know what okay. I mean? And so that's usually kind of how I look at it. It's like, I want, you know, if I get a couple pictures of him during the summer, like that's fine. Um, but what I really want is that like very end of September, very beginning of October, if I can get that picture of him, that's, that's the only one I really need. Yeah. You know, cause then I know it's like, all right, he's around now. It's just more about like waiting him out and figuring out like, you know, what weather is going to be the best weather to hunt him on, you know, get the right wind. And when you're hunting public, like this particular spot, like I don't often worry too much about deer that I see end of September or beginning of October on camera, not wanting to be there in mid October. Cause there's so much pressure around this whole area. It's why I kind of love it because it's, I have to sneak in a very specific way to get in there and it's, um, no one else is doing it essentially in this okay. spot. And everyone comes in from a different direction and they come in basically we'll just call it from my North. And so they push all the deer to the South. And so whenever things start to heat up, you hit that mid October timeframe where the weather starts to get a little cooler. People want to be outside a little bit more. All of a sudden people are kind of coming in from the North and they're pushing all the deer. So any of the, any of the good bucks that I know that I get on that camera at the beginning, end of September, beginning of October, I know is the get the, the getting gets good. I know that the pressure is actually going to start to push those deer closer to where I'm already kind of planning to be. Gotcha. And it's played out now. It's played out now three years in a row. Hey guys, just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the How to Hunt Deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge, making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that's a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions in the past, you know how frustrating it can be to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of accessories. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. Gotcha. So it's kind of tightening that noose, sort of shrinking that range where they're going to be at during daylight. Mm-hmm. You can kind of bet on it. Uh, so this picture yeah, that we're talking about. Cam- that, that's the only camera that I have actually on that entire piece is just oh, that one. Okay. And, and every year I get, I get a mature deer, you know, a hammer buck. If not like the one year I had three that were on it that were really, really good. Um, and that was the year that I learned that spot because those three mature deer did the same thing. Like they followed suit, like they all did the same exact thing. And it was all around the same like exact dates. Like it was all within like a three to four day window. Wow. Wow. 
So the other, the other kind of kicker for that spot though, too, is, is like, you know, this is another way I use trail camera data is like, especially like not during like the regular part of the season is like, I had assumptions that the reason why that area popped off, you know, early, and I'm not saying, so, you know, talking to Greg, like one thing he kind of taught me was like, man, mid October to kill a good deer is like a great, a great time because you'll usually get a mature deer in an area to make his first daylight mistake in that mid October timeframe. He's finally going to get up. He's going to stretch his legs. He's going to take a walk. He's just kind of, we'll just call it. He's checking his areas. Yep. You know what I mean? He's going to go for a walk and kind of survey the landscape before the shit hits the fan, yep. you know? Yep. And in this area, I was seeing that where it was like, man, you know, it was like hammer, hammer, hammer. And it was all the middle of October. And so I was like, cool, these dates are holding true. But the thing that I was, the thing that was odd was that it wasn't just like, one deer that's a mature deer that, that that's his haunt in the fall. And he just wants to make a pass through and check it out. It was the fact that like there were multiple within like a very specific window. Sure. And I was like, Hmm, I was like, I wonder if I have an early doe in this area, you know? And so I just watched cameras. I let them run out. That one's a cell camera. Cause I, it's a really hard place to get to. And I don't want to intrude cause I try to keep it clean. And sure enough, last year I finally got the data. I've watched an early fawn drop. And when I backdated that fawn drop, it would be the exact right around that three to four day window of where I'm seeing like the parade happen. Man. And Cause I'd always see like a mature buck show up and I would see like a couple of those hit the scrape and a couple young bucks hit a scrape and like another mature buck hit, a, hit the scrape. And I was always like, Hmm, seems very odd that, that, that it's that much activity. Like in this very short window, I was like, I almost feel like there's a, like an early doe in the area. And then I got the confirmation last year. And doe families hold their ester states from the, from the doe fonts hold the mother's ester state. So as long as that doe family stays in that area, that scrape will light up that same time every year. Man, that's wild. And that's something where, you know, you do well to pay attention to uh, a lot, basically all the the data that your cameras are giving you, because I mean, how many guys get it and they just scroll through to see like the big buck that's on there. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the picture that gets saved. Everything else gets dumped and they're not, you know, they're not paying attention to, oh, I've got a fawn. Let's try to backdate this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And a lot of, uh, there are a lot more clues out there that we could be uh, picking up on if we're a little bit more careful uh, with our trail camera data. And I'm, I'm the world's worst about it, man. I, uh, I compile a bunch of data and I get it. I get all my stuff. I got my pictures organized and everything. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to go through all that later. <laughs> and then I never do, you know, I just kind of, yeah. it just sits in a folder, yeah. but uh, any other spots? I, I've got some questions about after the shift. So any other spots, mm-hmm. though, during the summer that you're like, hey, if you're hunting in the big woods, these are the places that you need to be getting cameras up because they're, you know, high likelihood kind of spots. Because, um, you know, I've heard I've heard uh, Tony Peterson say before, like, why do you want to put a, a camera on a soybean field? Like, we know deer like soybeans. Like, that's not a surprise. Uh, when it comes to the summer though, if you don't have a soybean field, where are you, where are you putting them? Cause I mean, at the end of the day, velvet picks are cool and we want to get them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing is too, is like, I would say this is like what I'm finding, you know, so there, there's a just, so I'm always using like those, those primary scrapes, no matter where I'm hunting, you know, for, for trail camera, camera data, sure. doesn't matter what time of year. Um, but whenever I'm hunting like the big woods, like when I get up to the North piece and it's truly, you know, big woods, what I'm finding, you know, there's an extra level. And it took me like the past two years to figure this out where locally the bucks I have in the summer, you know, in, into that 
you know, usually I feel pretty confident if like that deer is still around after they peel and like, usually they peel velvet. That's the other thing you watch for. Like when you have summer photos is like pay attention to when they start peeling, you know what I mean? Because yeah. that'll tell you like roughly when things are going to shift, especially if you have an early opener for me locally, I have an early opener. It comes in mid September, you know? So usually it's like, if there's a buck that's in an area for the summer, if I can, I might have a one to two day window or that first week window to try to kill him. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. played out for me before I didn't, I, I ended up bumping him out of his bed, but he, he hung around and I never saw him again. So usually locally, once they peel velvet, I've got maybe three days like before they're gone essentially. And usually around here, they peel, I want to say like around anywhere between like the ninth and to the 11th roughly okay. has been pretty consistent. Yep. Um, and so after that, you know, after probably like 11th, uh, after probably like the 16th, it's, per, uh, yeah, after probably like around the 20th, like they're pretty well gone at that point. Like I might have like, if we have an early, like the 15th, I might have like two or three days, just depends on how the weekends fall. Um, but in the North piece, you know, what I've found is that because like the food is so kind of spread out so to speak. And there's like these micro habitats. That's the thing that I focus my cameras on, right. Mm -hmm. Is like, so it's, it's primary scrapes up there. And then it's these micro habitats. And, and I, I, I don't know if that's what you really call them or not. That's what I call them. Cause that's what it seemed to me. Like whenever I was walking along, I was like, boom, there was like this, this explosion of like good deer stuff that came out of nowhere yeah. that couldn't see on the map, you know, and there was nothing that would tell you that it was here other than just like walking up on it, you know? Um, and so I try to find those because it has everything that, that deer want. And a lot of times those micro habitats like that will hold their value throughout the year as well. So they be kind, they become kind of a hub just in general. And so I'll kind of locate those and kind of put some cameras on the edges. They, in, they inevitably always have like a scrape in it somewhere. Always. Like I haven't found one yet that didn't have like a really good, like primary scrape um, in that general area. The other thing I look for is just like really swampy, shitty areas, you know, something that holds water that's going to create, you know, levels of kind of like growth um, or just diversity of growth, right? Like yep. you might have like an oak tree on the edge of it, you know, uh, because it's got a little piece of high ground. So there's like an oak tree that's there and then you've got like the wet stuff and it's creating all this like swampy, like grasses and, you know, whatever. And then though, usually there's, there's one swamp in particular I'm thinking of that has, wild blueberries and raspberries. And I, by luck, cause I didn't know that they were in there the first year I hung a camera there. It was just, it was the area that actually had like this, that terrain that I was like, Ooh, this will probably funnel deer. Oh, there's a swamp back here behind it, maybe 300 yards. I was like, cool. I'm going to put a camera here and see if I can catch deer coming out of the swamp. Well, I didn't realize that in the summer, that area that I had hung that camera, it was just all brown grass. It was like flat at that point. Well, man, in spring, summer and leading into like the very beginning of October, in the middle of September, I guess it starts to die off about mid September, man, that thing is polluted with like wild blueberries and raspberries everywhere. And deer were just living in there as thick as thieves. And so that's just one of those things where it's like, man, sometimes it pays to be lucky. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like where I just, you know, hung a camera there on a whim and I was like, oh, this looks like a good spot, you know? And sure enough, it was like hammer, 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 you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's a lot of what I'll look for up there because, and this gets back to the point I was making, like pay attention to your appeal date and stuff like that for transition. Because in this area, what I found after running cameras for a couple of years is that I get a lot more homebody bucks in the big woods than I do locally. Yep. And I think I kind of have a hypothesis for it, but I think like locally, 
they disperse a little bit, they disperse a little bit more widely because even though there aren't like destination food source, like farms per se, Mm -hmm. like the food in like the habitat is just like a little bit more plentiful. And, and so they, they typically, but they have to kind of go to like another, like another public piece, if you will, or something like that. Right. Like they got to kind of move away from like where they're at. Right. I feel like in the big woods, there isn't as much abundance in very kind of specific areas. And so that buck that kind of finds his home, let's say in that, like that wild blueberry and raspberry patch with the swamp behind him, he just has to transition to that swamp and he has all the stuff he needs. The next area that might actually be good might be two miles from there or three miles from there. Not saying he won't travel that for rut because we know that they travel long distances for rut, but just in terms of like forcing him to change or transition just because like, because October one hit, I'm just not seeing it nearly as often. It's something I've talked to Tony Peterson about. He sees it too. And just other buddies of mine that hunt big woods. It's like, put it to you this way for, if I have five really good deer on camera locally, I'll probably have one that doesn't transition and he'll, and he'll stick around. The other four will be gone, you know, and where I, where I don't know how far I don't know. just far enough that like on any of the cameras that I have like around, I don't find it, you know, um, in the big woods piece that I hunt, if I have five really good deer on camera, there's a pretty good bet that three of them are going to be relatively close to where I originally found them. Yeah. And that doesn't mean he's going to be at that same camera location over and over again. Cause that might just been a summer kind of like food jam, you know, for him, but I'll probably catch him on another camera that maybe is like 700 yards away or 500 yards away or whatever, like to the North of that spot. So he's not like leaving the County necessarily when he transitions, he's just slightly shifting because now his, the food dynamic has changed slightly for him, but it's all within that same kind of smaller area. Sure. Cause that microhabitat is like the biodome, so to speak. Yep. I, I've seen the same thing. So obviously in ag country in Wisconsin, you see the shift and it's like, you had five bucks, one of them still mm-hmm. around. Where did they all go? Who knows? But I also hunt in like the deep, deep South of Alabama, basically almost on the Gulf, like right along the coast, 30 miles from the coast. Right. So mm-hmm. pine timber, monotonous forever is basically what you get there. Um, and we see the same thing down there where, you know, if we're getting bucks but with, you know, in the summer, velvet peels, what changes is their behavior. They become more nocturnal. Mm-hmm. They become a little more aggressive with each other. They may be spread out just a little bit on our property, but we're still seeing them. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're still seeing the same deer. Right. They may, they may come to the food plots or to the feeders at a different time you know, than they were before, or, you know, they're not coming in together like they were. Now one's coming in the middle of the night. One's coming right before day, before daylight, whatever. Um, but we're not losing them totally. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's kind of, kind of the same thing that you're seeing. Um, man, I, I, I'm so intrigued by this, uh, this, this Clint Campbell strategy of just go out in the woods and get lucky and find a great spot with blueberries all over the place. I just, uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't, that, that one's going to be, that one's going to be tough to, to duplicate for folks. How many cameras are you running at this point? Um, so I probably have like 20 plus roughly okay. that I'm using like myself, um, between here in the, the big woods piece in the North, it might be just a couple over 20. Um, but the thing is, is like that big woods piece, like I work it with two buddies of mine, my buddy, Aaron Hepler is, yep. you know, is, I know, you know, Aaron, you know, yep. he's a good friend of mine and we've scouted it a bunch together and our buddy, Tom, who lives like in the area, um, up there 
and we all just kind of exchange um, data with one another. Cause it's just so big to figure out and hunt. Like, and you know, one of we just want one of us to kill one of those deer, you know what I mean? Like we sure. don't care really which one of us it is, you know? And so we show, we share trail camera data with each other. We go hang cameras together. We check cameras together. You know, if I'm, if I can't make it up there for a little while, it's like, I'll tell Tom like, yo, check if you're walking by any of my cameras, pull the cards, just put a new card in it and just send me any of the good stuff. Yep. You know what I mean? So I know what's happening, you know? And so we really, you know, and it's, you know, not everybody has good hunting buddies like that. You know, I'm fortunate that I have a bunch of good buddies like that, that we can share Intel. We don't step on each other's toes. No one's trying to kill the deer from out from underneath somebody, you know, or anything like that. Um, and so it makes it easier. So it's like, when you think about the North piece, it's like, I might have 10 out up there, but I know Tom's got like 15 and Aaron's got like another five. Like we probably have like 30, you know, roughly 30 cameras, yep. like in, in, you know, on that piece, um, you know, and all in different areas, you know, and that's why I said like, man, you know, sometimes it is luck because it's like, I, like I said, I, I'll have burner cameras that I just carry in my pack. And if I find something interesting, I just like, boom, throw up a camera, you know, and that just takes time to do it. You know, it's like when I first started working that piece, you know, part of the strategy too was, it was like find areas where I thought deer would, would be, you know, and one of them was like, the first one was like this logging road that led down to this like fresh, like I shouldn't say fresh, but it was like maybe three-year-old clear cut. And I was like, cool, I'm gonna put a camera here. I would never hunt it, right? But it's like, I just wanna see what direction the deer are moving. I know they're gonna use this. Like, so some of it is like, use the obvious stuff, you yep. know what I mean? And then like, take that data and then ask the question, why? Like, why are they using it? Well, duh, it's a logging road, it's headed to the clear cut. Okay, um, where are they coming from? I know where they're going. What's down there? What's the sign look like down there? Where are they coming from? What's it look like up there? And then you just start kind of backtracking where the deer are. Like there's a picture I'll send you after this of the deer that I, that I bumped last year or that I presume that I bumped that we've been you know, like Tom was chasing him. I'm trying to figure out where he's at. And we slowly sort of moving cameras, like in a direction that we kind of caught him moving, you know, and then it's like, boom, cause we would always get him at night. Like you get him all summer long during the daylight and he would still hit that camera during, during the fall, but it would always be at night. And so then it was like, well, where is he going? Like, what is, like, how's he shifted? Because he's still in the area. Goes back to my point that, like, yep. I'm seeing a lot more of these older bucks in these big woods places not leaving the area, just kind of slightly shifting, like, their their travel, you know, if you will. Because um, it wasn't as frequent. But I knew he was still in the area. And so we kind of started, so we had him over here, and we had him here. And so now it's like this year, last year, I moved the camera further down. It was like, Boom. There he is again. Okay, cool. Tom had one down close to that area. Okay, cool. We got him there. Boom. Daylight. All right. Awesome. We're close. So now I put a camera further back. You know what I mean? Found a big scrape that's back there. Definitive trail up along a, a, uh, a drainage, which that's like a key area in these big woods pieces. That's something I picked up from Paul Putera talking with him, you know, him kind of giving me some advice of, of working around these drainages and boom, sure enough, I think I have him in daylight, uh, you and I were talking about before we started recording. I think I got him like in the uh, middle of May showing up on that scrape, nice. you know, checking that scrape nice. out before he was headed back to bed. And so some of it is just like working a plan and it might take you two years to start to dial it in, you know, but it's just ask that question why and start to backtrack and fit and figure it out. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, yeah. And that's really all I do. It's like, once I get one really good piece of Intel, you know, a lot of people, if they don't, see it happen again. They're like, well, that was worthless. And I, and I go, no, there's a reason why he was there. Like, why was he there? And like, where did he go? And now let me try to figure out again, because this is like big woods piece, man. It's like, it, once I moved a camera back last year, 
It wasn't a surprise. Saw him, saw another one that like, he had a weird club right side. And if his left side matched his right, like he was probably in the sixties. Wow. Like he was that big. Okay. And, and then like another mature deer that's like going downhill, like his, his, his rack looked like flames. Like it was all wavy, like he had an injury, like all of his tines looked like waves. But he was clearly like a super old deer. Like you look at his body, that deer was probably like five and a half, you know. And so it's like not a surprise. Like all of a sudden, it's like I moved it back and I started getting into like better, more of the good stuff. And it's like boom, the deer we were looking for showed up, and then three other like mature deer were all in the same area. Why? Because yeah. that spot holds the best shit. Yep, has the best stuff. Yeah, you know what I mean. And that's and that's all there is to it. And in a sea of, you know homogenous kind of like food and bedding opportunities. And then this one spot holds like all the prime stuff. It's like, that's where the deer are at. Yeah. I think as I'm just putting together everything that we've talked about so far, like one of the big things that stands out to me about your trail camera strategy and something that I think people can take home with them is this long-term sort of long game approach to using your trail Mm -hmm. cameras rather than, you know, well, I watched on, Midwest whitetail and I'm not, not knocking the Midwest whitetail guys, but like I'm watching Midwest whitetail and they, you know, they throw their camera out and they go check it a week later and they got this buck. And so they're going to move it again a week later. And then a week later they're going to move it again. And then they kill them in November. And it's like, well, you know, we're, we got them on trail camera starting in September. And so we bounced our camera all around and we, you know, tightened that noose and figured out exactly where he was at. That's really hard to do when you're not hunting mm-hmm. a, a prime 200 acre piece in, in Iowa. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, yeah. it, you really yeah. do have to play the long approach of figuring a whole property out as opposed to, you know, and, and not to mention just the pressure that you put on a deer. If you're, you know, hunting a place in the big woods of PA, that's a lot of intrusion in and out. If it's not going through a, a farm field where the deer is used to seeing a farmer drive through every day. You know what I mean? That, yeah. That's a, yeah. That's a great point, man. Cause like, that's the other thing. Like, and I picked this up from my buddy, Chad Sylvester. Cause like, I really started getting into big woods hunting whenever Chad and I first met, like that was our first hunt together. We went to this big woods piece and got our asses kicked for 10 days. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time with him, <laughs> spent a lot of time with him, you know, scouting that area and, and running trail cameras in that area. And so a lot of my strategy is a lot of what I learned from him finding big deer in these areas. And, you know, and I say sometimes I get lucky and, and, and I hate when people say this cause it frustrates me too, but it's like, I can't explain it any other way. It's like from walking with him so many times in areas that in the area we were playing with in Ohio, that big woods piece, like there is a low deer density there. Like there's just not a lot of deer. And so looking at the places that we were finding big deer and places that just don't have a lot of deer and the consistency that we were finding those deer, I kind of watched how he was doing it. Mm. And I was like, Hmm, something like that could work for me too. And so I kind of just adopted like the things that I picked up from, you know, walking through the woods with him and hanging cameras and asking like, Hey, why are you hanging a camera here? You know, and we would talk about it or whatever, you know, I kind of took that same approach and it was really that long-term game because, you know, those big woods deer, if they don't get bothered and they don't get killed, they're going to do this likely the same thing year to year. Sure. You know what I mean? And so it becomes important to build that year over year data. Not only that, when you have an area like the big woods piece that I'm working in, in, in PA where you do have like a vast discrepancy between there being good deer habitat and just terrible deer habitat adjacent to it. Right. It's like, it just becomes even more, uh, that, that long-term data becomes even more important because they're likely going to use that spot, not just the same deer, but the same spots like over and over and over again. Yeah. Right. And so, 
that's really kind of like why I started playing the long-term game. The other part of it is, is like, I'm a working stiff like everybody else. Like I have a regular nine to five job. I got some flexibility so I can hunt some mornings and, you know, stuff like that and do what I need to do. And, um, you know, more so than maybe some people do, but I'm still like a normal, normal guy. And so I don't hunt for a living. And so for me, the, the, the patterning, I'm not looking to pattern deer. I always say this, it's like I pattern, I pattern locations is what I try to do because I'm trying to figure out like when is the opportunity to strike in a spot that's going to give me the best chance because I might only be able to get out once this week. And so when October 18th rolls around, I already know where I'm going to be this year. Like, you know, I already know, like that's the spot that turns on that week. I'll be there. And so I try to get spots where it's like, I know the the couple day windows that are going to turn on for me and just make sure I'm in those places whenever they turn on. Yeah. And so that's the other reason why I pattern, you know, use the long-term data. And it's, and it's not just like one year. It's like, I want to see it happen like three years. Usually yep. if I can see something occur for three years, I feel pretty good that like, man, unless something really weird changes or something like forces a, a change in behavior, like you're going to do this thing every year until something, something disrupts it, yeah. you know? And so that's the other reason why I use long-term data is because I'm really looking for like, what are the windows of opportunity so I can maximize my time in the field and, uh, you know, and, and knowing that it's like, you know, I'm only going to have select days, you know, that I can't, I take a two week trip to Kansas. can't take two weeks off in October to hunt Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to be strategic about the days I'm going to take in PA and know that there's like the best days for me to, to, to hunt. For sure. For sure. Well, ma'am, before I let you go, uh, first of all, thanks for taking the time to come on. Uh, you've got a, you've got a little podcast too, man. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's growing. I mean, I hope you're doing okay with it. Um, but it's, it's no, I, I say that because your podcast is one of the ones that I've listened to since like the very beginning of me ever finding hunting podcasts. So, um, yeah, man, tell right. us about your show, what you got going on and, and what we can look forward to in the weeks ahead. Yeah, man. Um, it's the truth from a stand deer hunting podcast. You can find it everywhere, uh, that you find podcasts in general. Got some stuff on YouTube. Haven't done many videos lately, uh, but you can listen to all the podcasts there too, if you want to. Uh, got the blog. It's just truthfromthestand.com. If you want to check out anything, you know, there, Aaron, I don't write so much anymore. Aaron Hepler, uh, has been doing most of the writing for the blog in the past, over the past year, does a great job. Um, yeah. And Instagram, Facebook, just truth from the stand. Those are, those are the uh, usual places you can find me. My old haunts, if you will. There you go. Awesome, dude. Well, thanks for your time, buddy. Thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you could leave us a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. While you're at it, you can follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics that you want to hear, guests you want to hear from, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show and help me bring you great content each and every week. If you're looking for more outdoor content, check out the sportsmansempire.com where you're going to find my other podcast, The Wisconsin Sportsman, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts.